we can sort of like retrospectively think of the 80s as like almost a genre to be imitated, mm. even though it doesn't generally make sense to talk about a decade as a genre of sure. music. So lately, I've been trying to watch movies that I should have seen a long time ago, but somehow never got around to. The 1986 Tom Cruise Flies Planes film, Top Gun, was towards the top of my list. I'm not 100% sure why, I just knew it was one of those movies that I was embarrassed to tell people I hadn't seen, and it was right around the time that the sequel had just been announced. Anyway, my wife and I watched it, and it was fine. Entertaining, but not mind-blowingly great. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really get what the big deal was. Top Gun fans, I'm sorry. But what it did feel like, from the very first shot until the credits rolled, was a product of its time. Somehow the movie managed to just keep screaming 80s, 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 over and over, no matter what was happening on screen. The dreaded Soviet MiGs, the bomber jackets and one-liners, Tom Cruise's big toothy smile, the slow-mo eroticism and full-throttle high-fives, and of course that, that volleyball scene. But also the music. From the movie's very first sound, Harold Faltermeyer's gunmetal percussive synthesized score, that accompanies the images of fighter jets moving at dusk, and which soon segues into the cheesy banger that is Kenny Loggins' Highway to the Danger Zone. At a visceral, almost subconscious level, the music just says, this is the 1980s. And what makes it sound that way isn't necessarily rhythm or melody or harmony, although those all play a pretty important role. It's this other element of music that we call timbre, which we sometimes also call instrumentation, and which we sometimes also call instrumental color, it's almost, it's kind of the grain of the sound. If that sounds kind of heady, that's because it is. Timbre, it's spelled T-I-M-B-R-E, is one of the most immediate and instinctual aspects of music. It's what ma makes music sound so instantly recognizable. How when you listen to a song, you can tell within almost a split second who the singer is, or what decade the music was written in. But it's also one of the hardest to pin down and actually examine, which is why I'm struggling even now to give you a good definition. And so, to help me better understand what timbre is and why it matters, I spoke to the music theorist Megan Lavengood, an assistant professor at George Mason University. She wrote an entire dissertation theorizing the importance of timbre through the lens of the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer which supplies the iconic baseline to Highway to the Danger Zone, and how it shaped the soundscape of popular music in the 1980s. In her research, including a fascinating article for the Journal of Popular Music Studies about the DX7, as well as another project we'll talk about about the role of synthesized timbre in Sonic the Hedgehog video games, Megan analyzes how our idea of the 80s sound came into existence. This is Sound Expertise, and I'm your host, Will Robin. Stay tuned for this third episode of our first season, an interview with the music theorist Megan Lavengood about timbre. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, 
your work as a music theorist primarily focuses on timbre. Mm -hmm. And what is timbre? Oh, and boy. I know that's like either a really <laughs> small question or a really big question. So I'll let you kind of take maybe either or both. Yeah. So uh, people who study timbre complain about this, but sometimes the easiest way to define it is in the negative. So by saying um, it's what makes a violin sound different from a trumpet, for example, if everything else is kept constant. So it's not the pitch, say the pitch is the same, the loudness is the same, everything about it is the same, kind right. of what's left over is the timbre. So um, that gives you kind of an intuitive sense of what timbre is. You know, it's what lets you recognize one person's voice over another, even if you can't see their face. Um, yeah, so if we're talking about what timbre actually consists of, then we're talking about actually an acoustic phenomenon that has to do with the way sound waves kind of vibrate the air, part air particles that then reach our ear. And um, in addition to that kind of like raw acoustic data, we have to also factor in the way that our ear distorts that data and then how our brain and the different things we associate with different timbres kind of then further affects our perception of that timbre. Okay. So there's a lot of different angles. So there's kind of like the basic, like, is this a trumpet or is this a violin? And then there's yeah. like, what does that actually look like in some kind of scientific way beyond just these are different instruments that make different sounds that you can tell apart. Yeah, But how yeah, do you actually exactly. quantify almost exactly. how you tell it apart? And of course, like, it's not like a violin only makes one kind of sound. There's right, lots of different right, right, sounds right, right, a violin right. can make. So it's also just not as simple as saying, as instrument identification, source identification is okay. a technical term. How did you end up coming to timbre as something that you wanted to explore as a music theorist? I was always interested in it. Um, I think... Partially because I'm a singer and it's a lot of what you think about when you're making noises as a singer. Um, but I'm also a pianist and there you have much less control over the timbre. So kind of, I think kind of like the contrast between those two experiences was part of it. And I've always been really picky about the pop music I like to listen to because I'll like love some singers but really just not like other singers. And if I don't like the singer, it kind of doesn't matter what else is going on in the music for me. I don't really like to listen to it. Interesting. So okay. um, one of my first ideas for a project in my master's degree was to um, study vocal timbre. And unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of support for it at that stage. It was a lot of, um, well, how is this really gonna be music theory instead of you know, a linguistics project or something like that? If you're studying vowel sounds, isn't that really about linguistics and not? <clears throat> I see, so, interesting. So okay. it was kind of shot down at that time. Um, later, I did a project in my master's degree having to do really with instrumentation, which at the time I thought was, would count as timbre. And then when I presented that paper at a conference, David Blake, who's another timbre scholar, was like, you know, there's really, it's really not the same thing to just say that you have the timbre of a violin and the timbre of a trumpet. So to return back to that example right. earlier. Yeah. Like, when I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, when I teach timbre as a concept for, like I literally decided to just change the word to orchestration this semester for right. music appreciation because I was like, this is either something that's like deeply subjective in a, in in a teaching undergrads way right. or it's something that's incredibly specific and right. I wanted to aim towards the specific thing. So I was like, let's yeah. just call it instrumentation. Because it just makes things simpler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't until I got to grad school um, 
that I really got into like truly studying timbre and um, it was it was because I had a lot of encouragement from Mark Spicer who ended up being my advisor to go ahead and study pop music he mentioned that there's a huge gender imbalance within I mean within music theory as a whole but then even worse within popular music studies so he was like I really think that you should do your dissertation on this work and he said I, the, the timbre stuff would be really novel and not a lot of people are doing it which is a great reason to <laughs> write a dissertation on a topic so that's yeah how we got for there. sure yeah. so why and I want to get more into specifics of what you do with timbre soon but like what why is timbre something that's not so central in theory historically yeah there's a lot of reasons um so the first one, of course, is that music theory tends to deal with the written score, and timbre is not very well represented in music notation. So again, we can talk about instrumentation easily from music notation, and we can extrapolate from different kinds of performance instructions how that might affect the timbre, but it's really it's not really there. Um, the other thing is that I really think that until the 20th century, the timbres of classical music were relatively restricted. Um, there was a lot of focus, focus on producing good tone. Okay. Um, and so, you know, a lot of wild different kinds of timbres were not part of the repertoire. Um, and music theory, of course, mostly focuses on classical music. So if classical music says tone has to sound like this, then it just kind of eliminates a lot of variables. Um, and there are people that talk about tone in classical music, mostly like Emily Dolan is the biggest sure. name. Um, and she does a great job of explaining why, uh, how to sort of hear in an 18th century style, the way that the timbres were used in really creative and, um, in like trailblazing ways. But so notation, the historically constrained tone. Um, and the other thing is just that I think studying timbre is really difficult because when I talked about that sort of positive definition of timbre a little bit ago, um, I, it, it just involves so many components of the acoustic science, like perception, the anatomy of the ear, um, and then there's just so many different factors that go into what make timbre sound the way it sounds. Um, a lot of other factors that are maybe not strictly speaking timbre can influence timbre, like pitch influences our perception of timbre, even though we think of pitch as a separate thing from timbre. Um, dynamics influence timbre. Right. Like I mean, all it that seems, kind of stuff. I'm, and I'm a musicologist, so I'm going to generalize immensely here, but theory in some degree deals with something that you have to somehow find a way to quantify. Yeah. And tamper does not seem immediately like that, although you yeah. obviously developed and people have been developing these systems to, to right. quantify it in some way. Right. Like a lot of the stuff we talk about in music theory kind of happens on a spectrum, like pitch happens on a spectrum, rhythm happens on a spectrum. Um, different kind of like formal sections can be like parted out. Um but timbre doesn't really have a single spectrum that it lies on. You know, there's like many different dimensions to timbre and it's not just a two-dimensional thing. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk less uh, um, abstractly and more specifically. So, <laughs> yeah. so you have this great recent article about the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer mm -hmm. and this idea that it is kind of really significant in terms of shaping how, why we think of certain music as sounding like 80, quote unquote, 80s music. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how, yeah, like tell me about this project and how you kind of got into it. Yeah, so um, actually the only other time I've done a podcast episode. Okay. Um, Scott and Tarante, okay. and it was called, Pop Unmuted is the name of 
the podcast. So um, it, it's not active anymore, but he did an episode asking me about 80s music and um, specifically about this YouTube guy, I guess, that, um, that makes these 80s covers of current pop songs. And the okay. YouTube username is Tronic Box. And he was like basically asking me, why does this work? Like, why can you take music? And in some ways it like doesn't work because of course the melody and the vocal timbres are so different now than they were in the eighties, but to some degree they do work. And so he was asking how it is that even when we keep this, like, you know, it was at the time it was like 2015, I think if we take these 2015 lyrics, melodies and vocal timbres, how can we make that sound eighties through these other means? And so a lot of that, I said had to do with the Yamaha DX7. And then from that discussion, I started to get really interested in this idea of, of like an 80s cover because of course the 80s does a lot of different things, you know, hair metal, rap, um, and then mainstream pop and all its subgenres, punk. I mean, there's so many different things sure. going on. Um, and yet there's this sound that I think especially people who were not like thinking deeply about music in the 80s <laughs> can consider to be an 80s sound. So, like a, st- a stereotypical yeah, kind of timbre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think the existence and the effectiveness of these YouTube covers kind of proves that we can sort of like retrospectively think of the 80s as like almost a genre to be imitated, mm. even though it doesn't generally make sense to talk about a decade as a genre of sure. music. Yeah. But because these kind of sonic tropes have accumulated, we have this idea like 80s music is like, I don't know, I, I went to a wedding like a year ago where it was like they played a lot of 80s music. Yeah. And like that was both a time period, but also a kind of sound that like, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, exactly. So how, what's the role of the DX7, the synthesizer in, in shaping this idea? So the DX7 is just really really central to so much of the music of that time period. The DX7 was released at the end of 1983, and so it really peaks in um, in terms of like how many recordings it's in. It really peaks in like 1985, 1986. In those two years, so in the mid-1980s, it seems like if you pull up almost any track from that year, you can hear DX7 sounds being used. Um, on those tracks. And so even if people don't know what the DX7 is when we talk about it, they definitely would know the sound of it if if it were pointed out to them. Yeah, it's, you talk about how like the billboard charts are just dominated by DX7 and George yeah. Michael, I guess, is a famous... Like, What are some of the songs that folks might know about? Yeah, so I always um, say the the bass synthesizer at the beginning of Danger Zone with, hmm. you know, ba-da-ba-bum. <laughs> that's a that's a dx7 sound um but for the electric piano sound i um i like to reference tina turner what's love got to do with it it's always playing these chords throughout the whole song it's really easy to hear and so how did the dx7 come to kind of infiltrate pop music to this degree in, in this period so a lot of it is that it was a really affordable synthesizer for what it offered. Um, so of course, throughout the 80s and really still today, the price of like computer parts has just plummeted um, through time. And the DX7 is one of the first digital synthesizers, meaning that it, it does make use of a computer um, in its sound processing. And so it was able to do a lot of stuff really cheaply compared to the analog synthesizers, which involve more hardware, um, like actual electrical signals 
and um, and oscillators and all that sure. good stuff. Um, so it was just really accessible compared to a lot of these other things. So basically anyone could pop over to their music store and get one of these synthesizers for their garage band, for their like lounge act or whatever. And so even in, but it goes beyond like garage bands because even in these studios, they were using them too, just because of the wide variety of things they could do. Um, and then the interesting thing to me about the DX7 is that um, people found it really, really, really difficult to program because the kind of digital synthesis it uses is really based in like some difficult mathematics. Interesting. And okay. um, because of the way the DX7 is set up, you never get any kind of instantaneous feedback on what you're doing to the sound when you manipulate the algorithms and the, the values that are going into those algorithms. Like you can't move a slider and hear the timbre change at the same time. You just have to like change these numbers and then do all these different steps, hit save, and then you can check your sound. So it's just a really unintuitive process right. that people didn't really like. So most people just didn't go there and they just used the presets on the synthesizer. Okay. And so that's where we get these super famous sounds like the bass preset in Danger Zone or the electric piano preset in What's Love Got To Do With It. So it's cheap, so everybody wants to use it, but then it's also too complex, so everyone just defaults to the pre-programmed sounds. Yes. And the most famous one, I guess, is this, you, what is it, E-Piano 1? Yeah. Like what it, so what is E-Piano 1? Yeah, it's short for electric piano, and it's um, it's meant to evoke, I guess, kind of like a Fender Rhodes-ish type electric okay. piano sound. Um, it really doesn't sound that much like a Fender Rhodes, but, um, but it's a good reference point, I guess, for for what an electric piano is. Um, so I think that's how I got associated with the Rhodes, even though the timbres are kind of different. And how does the, what is the sound? I mean, you said the timbres are different, but mm -hmm. in this article, you talk a lot about the language that's used to describe 80s music and the language that's also specifically used to describe the e-piano. What What is that kind of language centered around? Right, so um, with digital synthesis, being kind of a new thing for the Yamaha DX7, people really had a lot of strong reactions to the way that it sounded. And the way that they characterized the sound was as, um, as it being kind of bright and harsh compared to other kinds of instruments. So compared to analog synthesizers, compared to electric keyboards um, like the clavinet or the electric piano. Um, yeah, so people would describe the latter group, the analog, the electric piano, um, as having kind of a warm timbre. And a lot of critique about the DX7 would be the fact that it doesn't seem to be able to produce a really warm sound. And mm. I just, when I was um, when I was researching for my dissertation, I would go to the New York Public Library and just check out all of these stacks of 1980s um, keyboard magazines okay. and uh, just kind of flip through them to try to get a sense, to try to like get myself into that time period and the way people were talking about it. And this theme just came up so much. Like anytime they were interviewing a musician, asking them about the DX7, um, the musician would say, yeah, they, they would often say like, yeah, I love the DX7, but the one thing that I just can't get out of it is a nice warm sound or like a good string sound with a lot of like depth and warmth. Um, they would say it's great at bell sounds, at plucked sounds, um, which sound good when they're nice and bright and sharp, but they would just really be missing the warmth. And so I just, I was amazed at all this consistency in this language. 
Um, and yeah, so I think that part of the 80s sound in general is also this affiliation with the sound lacking warmth. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, so I guess what I noticed was not only do people talk about the DX7 that way in the 80s, but also nowadays, retrospectively, people talk about the 80s as a whole as lacking a kind of warmth. And so Good music. to me, it's not a far leap to propose that the dominance of the DX7 directly contributes to this sense of the 80s having a very like crisp, clean sound. Interesting. And so one way that you deal with analyzing timbre is to, I guess, analyze the discourse around timbre. It's just like to right. reveal kind of like, this is not just like one person saying this, but it's this kind of omnipresent language attached to this instrument or attached to this particular preset on this instrument. Right. And then the other part is spectrogram analysis. Yeah. yeah. So what is spect spectrogram analysis okay so that the spectrogram analysis deals more with the physical acoustics um sort of the science of timbre um kind of like the raw data i guess so um yeah sound waves are what make us hear sound and it actually is moving particles in the air and when you have a recorded sound signal you can break down that sound signal into all the frequencies at which these airwave particles are vibrating. And so you get not only what we call the fundamental pitch, which is sort of what we think of as the pitch of the sound, but you also get what's called all the overtones of the sound, which are also technically separate frequencies from the pitch, from the, from the fundamental. But we don't hear them as separate pitches, we hear them as inflections of timbre which is kind of an interesting thing that's kind of hard to understand right. without, <laughs> without actually hearing an example. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, the, the sound waves that get kind of excited, the sound waves that, that vibrate when you hear a tone are not just vibrating at the frequency of that tone, but right. also at all these multiples of that tone. Um, yeah. So. And so what does a... Why spectrogram analysis as a vehicle for, for your research and how does it kind of work in your, in your analysis? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that music theorists really like to look at scores when they do analysis. And I think it's because music happens in time. It's this transient thing. And so if you don't, you know, you in some ways when you're just listening to something in time, you're limited in what you can perceive about it like how how you can process it as it's going by and it doesn't like wait for you to think of some brilliant idea so having the score allows a music theorist to you know compare two disparate moments side by side um and and think of things out of time a little bit better with kind of a visual aid so i think spectrograms are nice because they provide a similar kind of visual aid and so it's because, like a readout that has all this yeah i don't even know what you would how, how do you describe what it looks like <laughs> yeah it's all these parallel horizontal lines where each horizontal line looks like a medical chart or something yeah. yeah kind of yeah and each horizontal line represents one of those overtones one of those partials um, that contribute to the sound so it's a nice visual aid for talking about timbre i think it can help you sort of refine your vocabulary because sometimes timbre can seem like very ineffable um, and actually this is what I thought was so interesting about the term warmth was like, what are people actually keying into with timbre when they say that the sound has warmth? 
Um, and so maybe looking at the spectrogram with that in mind can sort of help you find something that seems to correlate to the use of that word. And so when you take a spectrogram analysis of the DX7 ePiano 1 and one of the Fender Rhodes, there's something different happening? Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so I was thinking, what can I look at in the DX7 and in the Rhodes to, to try to explain why everybody is saying this? And so the reason why this is kind of my research approach is because timbre is not just that, um, that physical acoustic representation that you get in the spectrogram, because that's just a computer processing a signal. It's very like black and white, um, and it doesn't have the same kind of associations that we make in our brains. So it can be a really interesting um, kind of research question to say, is this thing that people are all saying, what basis does it have in the physical world? And if it doesn't seem to have a clear basis in the physical world, that's kind of interesting too, um, because then it means that it's something that's happening socially, socially and culturally, mm, right. which is also interesting. So um, that's kind of the premise for a lot of of what I think about when I think about timbre. Um, and yeah, the, re the other reason why the Fender Rhodes question particularly interested me is because the electric piano one is compared to the Fender Rhodes a lot because they're both electric piano sounds. But it's a little weird to me to call the electric piano timbre, even of the Rhodes, to call that a warm sound because it's also, the way the sound is produced is they have these metal tines inside the keyboard that get struck with a hammer when the keyboard player presses the keys, and then that sound is amplified with a microphone. So it's um, sort of like a vibraphone sound or like a um, like a glockenspiel type, like Which a bell we don't type think of sound. As, as warm, normal, exactly, right? exactly, yeah. Like a metallic sound is almost never characterized as being warm. And yet, when they're comparing the Rhodes to the DX7, they're always saying the Rhodes has a warm sound. So I thought this would be a case where it would be hard to find something in the spectrogram data that reflected what people were saying, which was kind of like my point. Like, I think that people are calling things warm more because they think of the DX7 as not warm rather than that they think of the thing that's not 80s, you know, that's, that's made with analog technology as being warm itself, okay. if that makes so, sense. So the spectrogram analysis did not reveal a significant difference between these two well, electric like, piano sounds. I found some, I mean, there's definitely differences in the spectrograms that I'm able to point to and say, this is something that's really different between these two instruments. And the biggest one was that when the DX7 sound kind of initiates, it's all pretty clean looking. I don't know how else to put it. Maybe it's better to understand it in contrast to the road sound. When the road sound initiates, it's like very noisy at the outset. And I think what that comes from is the fact that, like I said, a hammer is actually striking a metal tine and then a microphone is picking up on it. So um, I think probably the limitations of the way the microphone works and also just the kind of untidiness of the physical action creates a uh, a noisy effect that could be correlated with warmth. It's not the kind of thing that maybe we would traditionally say is a spectrogram feature that means that the sound is warm, but it's one really big difference between the two sounds, so maybe that's one of the things. The other component then is that 
the DX7 sound has just a couple of high overtones that sound really, really clearly compared to the Rhodes, which um, tends to have less of those high-pitched overtones, which is something that sometimes correlates to brightness hmm. um, and thus to warmth. Okay. So something that's not as active in the higher in the higher overtone range can sound warmer. So there's these two kind of things, but overall the sounds were like fairly similar. And if I took away those things, they sounded extremely similar, I think. And um, so I was like not super convinced that there is a humongous difference between the two sounds. Um, and instead what I think is probably a better explanation for why they think that Rhodes is warm is because of the physical action. As a keyboardist, you can actually feel how the sound is being produced when you play the keyboard. I and see. Interesting. Yeah. So I think, I think they feel more connected to the sound and that's kind of like a, a positive experience. I would, I would say, um, you know, coming from a keyboardist perspective myself, I, it just feels nicer to play an instrument where you're physically producing the sound. And even though the DX7 action is really, really good, it's not as, it's just not as connected. And I think especially when you think about the fact that warmth is kind of a tactile analogy, um, it's based in touch. Like you touch something to say that it's warm. It's, a, it's based in physical feeling. So I think it's, it's, I think it makes sense to say that it's something that relates to the way it feels physically to touch the instrument. And that leads to this kind of accumulation of language, which builds like this whole myth, which yeah. I mean, you talk, you have some people in the, in the article talking about this, like the DX7 either being like the savior or like the destroyer of pop music. And, yeah, and so yeah. you see all of that kind of traces back to not actually the sound, but the physical sensation in a way. Like, I think the sound is part of it. Um, and that's why I include the spectrogram discussion, but I also feel like, um, I feel like people's strong reactions to it are kind of culturally based. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, there's a, there was just like a lot of anxiety in the eighties about, um, well, I guess this is kind of a parent, like a tale as old as time. Like technology is going to ruin. Sure. Yeah. Technology is going to ruin our jobs as musicians. I mean, it starts with records, right. And, um, and recorded sound period. And today it's probably, like samplers sure, and auto-tuning um, or whatever auto-tune is a big one yeah so it's always something different in every decade you know what technology is going to ruin music and so in the 80s a lot of it was synthesizers so it's it's easy i think for people to point to synthesizers and kind of demonize them and say this is why this sounds bad and so i guess what i'm implying and haven't yet articulated is that i think sometimes people just describe stuff they like, sounds they like, as warm sounds. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of like my pet theory. Yeah. Like I there aren't that many that. people who like say they like cold music, I guess. Right, exactly, right. exactly. Like I think, you know, being warm is a nice feeling. and so. People... But people are also attached to that 80s music in a For way. For sure. So that's, that's interesting too, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of used to be more interested in pursuing that theory as a line of research. Um, but I found that even in the handful of years that have gone by from when I started this project to now, like I started it in 2015 and it's 2019 now. And even in that short time, I feel like people have really um, started to appreciate the 80s sound and the digital sound a lot more. Um, and I don't exactly know why that is, hmm. but 
So you take some of these kind of ideas that I guess you developed in your dissertation and have started to apply these ideas about sound and kind of sonic warmness and coldness to to actual Sonic the Hedgehog. Ah. <laughs> I was like, I should write down I this know. pun. Um, I don't know. I can't remember if you used the pun. But so so you have this really fascinating essay, which I, as as a child of the 90s, I enjoyed reading about, about yeah, Sonic yeah, the Hedgehog yeah. 3 for Sega Genesis. Um, how did you start working on kind of sound and music in video games? Uh, was that part of your dissertation or is this no. all? No, no, this is kind of like, um, this was kind of like the first project that I did that was going to go beyond the dissertation. Um, I think somebody kind of mentioned to me offhandedly that the Sega Genesis uses a sound chip that basically repurposes the technology of the DX7. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. And I started kind of Googling about it. And uh, there's a huge community for video game music uh, on the internet. It's like really quite astounding how devoted people are to video game music and all the things that they've done to make it um, accessible. So I... um, for my for my methodology, it's really important to be able to kind of isolate the DX7 sound from the other things going on in the music because it's just the spectrogram is a bit easier to read when you don't have percussion. Really, percussion kind of messes everything up, um, and I won't get into why because I don't think it's super interesting. But um, the the Sega Genesis and a bunch of music from it can be emulated on a computer. And like people have gotten the data off of the actual game cartridges, oh, wow. like all the signals that fire in the computer that tell the computer to play this or that thing. And then they've emulated the sound chip on the computer so that you have like the Sega Genesis equivalent of the MIDI signals that you can manipulate. In so you this. can make any music in Sega Genesis style, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so I can download these files of the Sonic 3 soundtrack and be able to manipulate them kind of any way that I need to. So I can um, single out each channel of the soundtrack so I can get just one line at a time, or I can have whatever particular mixture of channels I want. And so being able to have that much control over the sound signals that I'm using is really great for research purposes. Mm. So I actually never owned a Sega Genesis as okay. a kid. Um, I did not. I, my parents didn't let me have video games until later, oh. but I did play a decent amount of, of Sonic. I actually own a Sega Genesis now. Oh, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we were just a Nintendo household, yeah. so I just didn't have a Sega. Um, but um, So I actually don't have like as much of a visceral love sure. of Sonic as some other people do. I've no, I never understood Sonic the appeal over Mario, but that's 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 not. I don't want to get into <laughs> that. Now that I've like tried to play yeah. it, I, it's really hard for me. Like I should... it's it's hard, period, and it's not. I just I don't know. I like there's like five minutes of any Sonic where you're running really fast and it's fun, and then the rest yeah. of it is like punishingly annoying. Yeah, yeah, it's really frustrating. <laughs> anyway, back back to the music. Um, but so, I mean, I guess part of the reason why the sound of Sonic resembles the sound of all this 80s pop is the technology of the Genesis. Yes. But there are also the, these other connections between Sonic 3 specifically and Hedgehog. Uh, sorry, not Hedgehog. And, and <laughs> 80s pop. Can you talk a little bit about how that... And the Mike, the Michael Jackson thing? You oh gotta, my gosh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, it ends up not being terribly relevant to the paper, but it's just such a pervasive and popular kind of rumor that I feel like it needs to be acknowledged. It's like the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this 
like whole conspiracy theory that Michael Jackson is the composer of a lot of the music on Sonic 3. And uh, people have found like a lot of evidence to support this. Um, just there'll be these basically like music theory, music analysis videos that you can find on YouTube where they're like, this motive is the same as this motive and Michael Jackson. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's like some evidence for sure that Michael Jackson was at least courted to be involved right. with the Sonic 3 soundtrack. But Sega says that Michael Jackson was not involved and like he's not credited. And so like to this day, Sega says that Michael Jackson was not involved in the Sonic 3 But there soundtrack. are like truthers who believe yeah, it. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. And some of the people that did work on the soundtrack have kind of said, yeah, Michael Jackson was involved with the soundtrack. That's crazy. So that's kind of why it remains in the realm of conspiracy theory because Sega will not confirm it. I don't know. Maybe someday they will. But um, but I think like as recently as 2016, they've said no no Michael Jackson involvement, That's and crazy. so then that leads people to wonder why isn't Michael Jackson credited? Um, and there's kind of two competing theories on that. One is a little bit more favorable to Michael Jackson, and one isn't. So the one that isn't favorable to Michael Jackson says Sega does not want to be affiliated with Michael Jackson sure. because he's a predator. And the other one says Michael Jackson was ultimately disappointed with the sound capabilities of the Sega Genesis, and so Michael Jackson didn't want his name affiliated with the soundtrack because he was disappointed in the results. So all of this is kind of conjecture, but, but people love to right. talk about it. So, I mean, regardless of Michael Jackson's affiliation, what are the resemblances between the Sonic 3 soundtrack and, like, 80s new wave music, other, other 80s pop music? Yeah, the, it uses a lot of styles of music. And so, like, one point I bring up is that Michael Jackson himself uses a lot of different styles in his music. So that's maybe one kind of connection. You talk about it being polystylistic. Yeah. Right, right. And... Um, in addition, there's just a lot of different types of 80s genres that seem to be being evoked in the soundtrack. Um, there's like some metal stuff and there's some new wave stuff, but there's also like various kind of, um, for lack of a better term, kind of world music, like regional styles, um, like a lot of Caribbean music. There's like a Trinidadian music and things like that. So. Um, One of the levels you talk about is this ice cap zone level. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the music for that and how it kind of relates to the DX7 or, or the yeah. coldness? Yeah, yeah. Um, the level ice cap zone is a great example of new wave music in the Sonic soundtrack. And so a couple musical features that sort of, to me, scream new wave um, are the really rapid bass lines. So those really kind of rapid fire bass lines became popular in the 80s because they were able to be played by synthesizers and with sequencers, arpeggiators, stuff like that. Um, so a really quick moving bass line would be really hard to do if you're an actual bass guitarist, but these other technologies make it possible. So that was really popular in new wave music. And uh, in addition, there's kind of like a four on the floor drum beat. So that kind of comes from disco which grew into new wave um, and of course a dominance of kind of synthesizer timbres. And then this is kind of where the complication comes in because of course all the sounds on all Sega Genesis music are synthesized. They're all made with this like sound chip. Um, so what does it mean to say that these sounds like sound like synthesizer sounds? Um, I found out that Ice Cap Zone is actually uh, pretty much a recasting of an actual new wave song from one of the musicians that worked on the soundtrack. His name is oh, Brad Buxer. Right, right, right. 
and he had a band that was not super famous called the Jetsons with a Z. And um, they, I can't remember the name of the song, but they have a song that is pretty much the same as Ice Cap Zone. And in that original song, they are using synthesizers for a lot of these parts. So to me, it's um, that kind of bolsters the idea that these particular synthesized timbres are meant to resemble synthesized timbres rather than imitations of acoustic instruments. And part of this is also, I think you say, like Sega wants Sonic to be a kind of quote unquote cool character, yeah. unlike say Mario. So that's like wanting to make the music sound like contemporary pop music versus right. something, you know, more quote unquote timeless or look, sound like classical music like Zelda or something like that. Yeah, a lot of the music is sort of like has an edgy sort of vibe to it and that's very much the aesthetic that Sega was going for in their marketing with Sonic. So with Nintendo already dominating the home video game market, Sega was trying to distinguish itself from Nintendo explicitly and so yeah, they were trying to go for this Sonic is cool and edgy and like and modern and hip and so much better than, you know, a chubby Italian plumber. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. How has working with video game sounds um, kind of changed or, or enhanced your understanding of timbre? Yeah. I, I think it's nice because you really have to consider the way that humans interact with the sound because it's part of this whole interactive, immersive environment, a video game environment. Um, it's all about like what you can do inside the person's mind. Whereas, I don't know, maybe with other types of music, it's more possible to think of it as music in isolation, you know, as kind of a pure thing, which is also, you know, constructed. Oh, because video game soundtracks are directly, they're designed for this kind of specific player experience, you mean? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, like, I think a lot of times people think of music as totally detached from its context, especially like music theorists tend to do that. But in a multimedia kind of thing, it's pretty irresponsible to discard the other media that's part of the experience. Right. Like video game music is attached to a video game. So you have to consider that context. And so, so that's something that I really like about that. All right. Well, those are all my questions. Thanks okay. so much. This was really wonderful. I'm very grateful to Megan Lavengood, Assistant Professor of Music Theory at George Mason University, for that fantastic discussion. If you enjoyed it, I encourage you to go on eBay and buy a Sega Genesis. I hauled mine up from the basement a few weeks ago and booted up Sonic and discovered once again that after about five minutes of playing Sonic, I get very bored very quickly. Um, you can also visit soundexpertise.org for links to everything we're talking about today, including Megan's 2019 article on the Yamaha DX7 in the Journal of Popular Music Studies. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation and the work of my amazing producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Please subscribe and tell everyone you know that Sound Expertise is your favorite podcast, even if it's not. Next week, we'll have a super duper extra special guest, the New Yorker music critic Alex Ross, talking about all things Wagner and all things Wagnerism. And finally, if you disagree with my Top Gun take, well, that's what Twitter is for. See you next week.